Okay, well, it's about um, 201 or 202. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, so it, it's my pleasure to have you all guys all here today for Critical Care Grand Rounds. And it's really my distinct pleasure to introduce um, to you all today, Dr. Serbi Lika. Um, Dr. Lika is an associate professor here at University of Maryland in epidemiology and public health, as well as in uh, medicine. And she's the medical director of our infection control unit. So if you haven't already seen her around dealing with um, COVID precautions and monkeypox issues, you certainly will, and you'll have emails from her. And, and, and so I asked her to come talk to us today about some of the new data coming out about CLABSIs um, and about whether or not sort of we should be changing our practice and thinking about how we're putting in and where we're putting in central lines. Um, so Dr. Lika, thank you so much for joining us. I really look forward to this talk. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Levine and, and team. Um, um, you know, I, it is nice actually to think about and talk about something other than COVID or, or now monkeypox, I guess, although you will see some COVID-related uh, slides in here as well. We, you know, we just cannot in, in this time of pandemic move away from that. So with that, uh, we will be discussing some updates on prevention of central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSI. And uh, here are the objectives for today. So the first one is to describe impact of the pandemic on CLABSI incidents, both nationally and locally, uh, then discuss central venous catheter, CBC site selection and insertion practices. It really is mostly about the site, a little bit on ultrasound guidance, which, um, you know, which, which we know is the standard, at least for some insertions. Uh, and then summarize some recent literature on use of midline catheters in critically ill patients um, and see where we can go um, uh, with regards to that at the medical center. So why, you know, we're thinking about this right now, uh, as you will see in the next few slides, is that we have seen significant increases in central line infections, both nationally and at the medical center in the last three years. It's, it's been quite something um, really to see this. Um, and the second uh, bullet, uh, why we're thinking about this, as was mentioned, uh, there have been a few updates to the guidelines we um, use for CLABSI prevention strategies, and, and I'll go through some of those. Um, and finally, there are emerging data on studies uh, of safety of midline catheter use. I thought it would be good for us to revisit that as well. So with respect to um, CLABSI, um, in the in, in times of COVID-19, um, we have seen substantial increases in healthcare-associated infections all around. So it's not just central line infections, but central line infections do seem to have been affected most and quite consistently, uh, you know, across different units in the hospital, across different types of hospital in the system, and then in the country. And you know, what's even more remar remarkable is that it. it keeps on going up so that you'll see that uh, in, in some of these graphs. So nationally, um, looking at CDC data, they initially reported uh, about a 24% increase in CLABSI between just the whole, uh, all of 2019 and 2020, knowing that the pandemic effect was uh, mostly in the last you know, three quarters of 2020. And uh, not surprisingly, the largest increase was in the ICU setting. Um, then they published another report also, um, uh, well, well, before that, a 47% increase comparing just the very last quarter of 2020 to the last quarter of 2019. Um, and, and that's interesting because by 2019, a lot of gains have been made in CLABSI nationally, and there, um, you know, there were thoughts of rebaselining our uh, comparison rates in the year 2020 before the pandemic hit. Um, when they analyzed the data for 2021, uh, there's 
some interesting uh, data there that suggests that there's more, there are higher rates in the first quarter and the third quarter of 2021, uh, which coincides when uh, nationally COVID hospitalization rates are at their highest and uh, lower rates in the second quarter, which was coincident with the lowest burden of hospitalization in the country. And what is still pending from the CDC are data during and after Omicron, uh, but we'll show you that for, um, for the medical center. Um, before I go to that, um, there are some, in the, there are many uh, reports by now out there in the, um, in the literature, and the two of the larger health systems have published their experience, and I thought it would be interesting to share because we are seeing some of the same things. So um, this is from the Ascension Health System. Um, and they found that hospitals that had monthly COVID-19 patients representing a larger proportion, so more than 10% of their admissions, had a CLABSI standardized infection ratio, which was more than twice um, than hospitals with less than 5% prevalence during the pandemic. So uh, I'll refer to this SIR a few times uh, in the next slide as well. Uh, the SIR is, um, is, is a ratio of what's observed in your um, hospital or facility to what's expected based on the national baseline from back in 2015. And then another interesting observation is that uh, infections caused by coagulase negative tests, so what we consider skin commensals or skin contaminants, but also can cause line infection, also increased by 130%, as well as Canada, which can be both a skin and a GI uh, bug also increased. In the Duke system, uh, they just published um, a report that's hot off the press where they show higher or disproportionate impact in their smaller community hospitals in their system that had fewer resources and greater staffing challenges, which had existed even before the pandemic and were exacerbated quite a bit um, after the pandemic, so less IP and infectious disease resource, but also general staffing. Um, so we have looked and we have discussed contributing factors, and this is uh, you know, a summary of not just what we see, but what's also been published in the literature. Uh, so it was clear when it was limited to COVID-19 patients, which it was for about the first quarter when we had, had them, that that's whom we were seeing the infections in. Uh, that it was a function of you know, proning the patients, less contact with the patient, um, you know, difficulties with line maintenance, lines that were outside the room, you know, a bunch of those factors. Well, that's no longer the case. Well, for the most part, that's not the case. But we're seeing the impact in all of the patients. And the number one issue that we see is staffing. You know, that's, that's also been described by others, and that's certainly um, contributing to our increases. So it's, it's less staffing, uh, less, and there are plenty of publications in, you know, over the last few decades on a very close association between uh, staffing and healthcare-associated infection. So it's not a surprise, but it's just um, very eye-opening to see that unfold in real time, and you know, those rates just keep going up. Um, we have a, a ton of agency or travel staff that are not used to the same environment, used to different practices, and then we've lost many of our dedicated champions who would push the infection prevention work uh, to the bedside and be eyes and ears on the ground, um, helping people remind, uh, helping remind people of best practice. Um, also, some gaps in um, competency, both for insertion uh, and particularly for maintenance. Uh, and such that there's been a loss of uh, the basic practices 
uh, of which we think of chlorhexidine antiseptic bathing or treatment as uh, one of the top practices. And that also correlates with the types of organisms we're seeing, because in the CAG intervention studies, there was a strongest effect on a reduction in infection for gram-positive cocci, including coag-negative staph in Canada, and that's what we're seeing increases in over the last couple of years. And uh, we've also seen the lowest uh, dressing integrity in, um, in, in several years, um, you know, in, in the last couple of years. Um, catheter access, you know, every time you access catheter, there's risk for infection, and um, that's definitely a contributing factor if you're not paying attention every single time. So when you don't have, uh, when you have staff that are overextended, busy, uh, there is certainly loss of that, um, that element. And as I mentioned, we are seeing contaminated blood cultures, but also contaminated lines or colonized lines more than we used to, uh, which, um, uh, you know, that seeing these coag negative staph infections tends to be a pretty good um, indicator of this, what I consider the general state of asepsis or um, uh, aseptic technique in handling uh, devices in general. So that's, that's where we are. Um, I'm going to switch, you know, setting the stage for why we just need uh, a closer look at, you know, that we're following the guidelines and are up to date on our practices. That's, that's the background. So moving on to um, some literature and guideline updates, uh, particularly with respect to insertion. And what I did was, I mean, there are a ton of data, as you know, and I, I do apologize because I do have a lot of data in these slides as well. I'll try to go through most of it, but then you know, leave the slides for you if you want to look at those later. But the last time we had our national um, guidelines updated, the CDC have not updated their guidelines since 2011. SHEA, which is the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, which is our professional society, uh, last put out a, a compendium of strategies for, uh, for reducing or preventing healthcare-associated infections in 2014, and they just released an update of that in 2022, uh, which, which prompted some of these discussions. So the studies that I thought I would touch upon, um, you know, one which I, I think this team is probably familiar with, but it's good to revisit because it is the most robust study of insertion sites for uh, central line infection prevention, uh, which is the three-site study, and we'll talk about that. And the other thing that you'll see um, as a repeated theme in this talk, so uh, many of these landmark studies, uh, particularly the randomized controls uh, trials, including the three-site study, um, have been done in French ICUs by uh, a very solid group of investigators. And those form the basis of a lot of the recommendations in the guidelines and, and the strategies that we use. Um, and, and they keep putting out uh, many of these post-hoc analyses that I thought would be interesting to go through uh, from four of their large um, RCTs, including the three sites that we'll talk about. A couple of other trials that we won't touch on, but just so you know, the dressing one, which was their um, trial of comparing CAG discs versus regular dressing and dressing two, which was the CAG gel versus regular dressing, both of which were RCTs that showed benefit of that approach in preventing um, Clapsies. And then the, the last study that they did was uh, CLEAN, which was comparison of the alcohol or hexidine versus alcohol iodine, which also showed clearly benefit of CHG over um, iodine-based uh, PrEP. And then a few updated meta-analyses that incorporated some of these studies and observational uh, data that I'll mention. 
before I do that, though, uh, one of the um, studies that came out of you know this this combination uh, database is really thinking about um, what endpoints are used in central line infection studies. So when you uh, look through this literature, and I always have trouble doing this, um, you know, because people variably refer to as catheter-related bloodstream infection. You'll see this acronym CRBSI. Uh, or CLAPSI or catheter-associated infection. So, you know, what is the difference between all of these and what, which one is the right outcome to consider? So this study, which is very recent, took a look at this. And um, just to go with these definitions, the CRBSI is the clinical outcome of bloodstream infection that is judged to be from CDC source that does require your, you know, clinical adjudication or, you know, matching cultures from the tip um, and, um, and the blood culture or a differential time to positivity. And this is really considered the gold standard for diagnosis of um, a catheter infection. There's also catheter tip colonization. And uh, particularly in the older studies, this was often used as the outcome um, in, in these uh, research uh, studies. Um, one of the reasons for using this so that it's, it's a more frequent outcome, um, but it does require routine culturing of removed catheter tips. Um, and um, because it's more frequent, it can increase the power of the study, so it's often used as a surrogate. Uh, then there's catheter-associated infection, which is a combination of uh, the CRBSI and culture-negative infection. So if there's sepsis that you suspect from the catheter, those all uh, fall into this category. And then finally, CLAPSI is what we see us use most of the time. This is very much a CDC surveillance definition, which is, in essence, a positive blood culture in presence of the central line and no other source to which that infection can be attributed. Okay. So when uh, uh, these investigators, what they did was they took uh, the data from uh, multiple randomized trials and uh, looked at uh, how well these definitions correlated. And what they found was that the colonization definition was very poorly consistent with intervention effects on the, CRB, the CRBSI definition, which is considered the gold standard. Um, the, the CAI was moderate to good, so that might be used. And the CLAPSI definition was also a poor surrogate. So I, I really wanted to highlight this because you know, we use CLAPSI so often, but it really should be limited to use for surveillance purposes. Whereas when you're reading papers and studies or even thinking clinically, it is the CRBSI definition which is preferred uh, definitely from a clinical research standpoint. So be mindful when you're reviewing papers on what definitions are being used. Okay, so let's move on to the three-site study, uh, which I've mentioned a few times. And again, I hope most people are familiar with this because it is a landmark study um, in the field. So this was a randomized control trial in adult ICUs where um, and the patients were randomized to a subclavian jugular or femoral vein site for insertion. And the randomization was either done in a one-to-one-to-one -one -one ratio if all three insertion sites were considered suitable in a given patient or a one-to-one -one if two sites were suitable. Um, they had, in the end, uh, 3471 uh, catheters in uh, 3027 patients. The primary outcome measure of the study was a composite of CRBSI and symptomatic uh, DVT. 
Um, and this is what they found in their three choice comparison. They had these numbers of events, so age 20 and 22 in the subclavian, IJ, and femoral arms, respectively, uh, for the rates of 1.5, 3.6, and 4.6 per thousand catheter days. So those were different. So you can see, um, you know, for the subclavian, the lowest uh, number of events per thousand catheter days. When they did the pairwise comparisons between, you know, the two sites uh, for a, CR, a CRBSI risk, um, you know, the femoral was clearly worse than subclavian. IJ looked worse than subclavian, uh, but no real difference between femoral and IJ in this randomized fashion. And that had been actually a pretty significant question even going into this trial, because even with earlier data, you know, the, the superiority of subclavian had been there, but mostly from non-randomized um, uh, data, but this, this established that most clearly, uh, more clearly, and, um, um, but, but not a big difference or any difference at all between the femoral and, and IJ. Uh, what is notable though, and that's why you know, we have this discussion, and that's why the recommendation is always, even though the recommendation for prevention of infection is clear, what to do is not always as clear because the risk of pneumothorax requiring chest tube was undoubtedly higher in the subclavian insertions uh, relative to um, IJ insertions. Um, what's also interesting is that, um, you know, because this was a randomized trial, they did use an intention to treat analysis, meaning if someone was randomized to receive a subclavian, that's how they were analyzed. But they also did a poor protocol sensitivity analysis, uh, where they found that the differences in the outcome between the subclavian and the other two groups were even larger. Uh, and that was because uh, almost half of the infections in the group that was considered subclavian were actually in catheters that were inserted elsewhere. So, you know, they, even though they were randomized to that arm, that was not the ultimate catheter that they got, or, you know, maybe it was switched to something else. So the, the infections occurred in a different uh, catheter, but were attributed to the subclavian group because of the intention to treat uh, protocol. Um, so interestingly, after the study was published, there was a subsequent meta-analysis that included this study, but also many studies from before. And in that meta-analysis, the authors did not see uh, a, a difference between subclavian and IJ, but there was a rebuttal to that uh, by the authors of the three-site study uh, showing that, uh, that the meta-analysis, A, did not account for the duration of catheter uh, which was uh, undoubtedly higher for subclavian insertions in the studies that were included. Also, uh, the data held true when it was using observational studies, which were quite heterogeneous, um, meaning the, the meta-analysis itself would, would uh, uh, not be considered as reliable. Also, when um, the analysis was repeated accounting for duration and including additional studies, the risk for um, IJ did seem to be higher uh, in terms of infection than for uh, subclavian. And, you know, this, this whole um, um, idea of the higher risk is, or lower risk for subclavian is biologically supported, meaning we know that there's less uh, bioburden on the skin at the subclavian site, definitely in a relative to the femoral area, but also relative to the neck, and there's less uh, chance of dressing disruption, and we see that uh, every day uh, in, in the ICU patient. Okay, so what about IJ versus femoral? There are really no, no new data, um, uh, you know, in, in the last few years, 
but I did want to summarize, you know, where we are with the literature and what was considered in the guidelines uh, that I'll, uh, uh, I'll come to in a bit. So overall, uh, the, the results are mixed. I, I, we already discussed the results from the, uh, the three-site study, which did not have a difference, and that is pretty robust data. But then, the, you know, there have been several meta-analyses, and two of them do show a lower infection rate with the IJ site. Um, but again, those data are mostly supported by observational studies, but that difference is not seen when you uh, limit the analysis uh, to just randomized trials, which is considered a more robust uh, methodology. The other thing I want to point out is, um, again, this is also a study that uh, some of you may be familiar with, but um, the Michigan Keystone Project, which was an 108 ICU study of a CLAPSI bundle in uh, Michigan ICUs, um, you know, that made the checklist and the CLAPSI bundle uh, famous and part of our standard practice did have avoidance of the femoral site as part of that bundle. And even though that was a non-randomized study, they had some pretty dramatic um, effect sizes on uh, the uh, effect of the intervention. So that also uh, plays a role in this, um, in this recommendation for trying to avoid the femoral site. Um, and if you look into some nuances of uh, some of these studies, uh, what we see is that the difference is uh, between the IJ and the femoral is supported more for the catheter, catheter colonization um, endpoint, which is not surprising knowing that the femoral is uh, an area of higher bioburden, but not as much for the BSI endpoint, which is the more clinically relevant endpoint. It's also a supported more for patients who have high BMI. Um, so that's something for us to consider and then in catheters in place for more than five days. So those are some of the things to keep in mind when trying to decide between IJ and femoral in, in practice. Okay, I then have a couple of interesting studies. I, I, I think these are just very interesting to go through. Um, so let's see if we can um, get through this. This one I thought was particularly um, intriguing. Um, this is also from the um, from the data, the combined databases from the four large uh, RCTs and French ICUs, and it has to do with looking at off-hours insertion and risk of CLAPSI, um, or I should say CRBSI in, in this instance. So here they had uh, over 7,000 patients in 25 ICUs for over 15,000 catheters, and here you can see how many of those were inserted during off and on hours. Uh, interestingly, the median duration for the off-hours catheter insertions was four days, and for the on-hours catheter insertions was six days. So that you know, this is not not randomized. Uh, this because um, this is just a post-hoc analysis of RCTs for other reasons, but not randomized to off versus on-hours insertion. Obviously, so um, uh, clearly there is some inclination to remove the off-hour inserted catheters uh, a little sooner in, in this in this. Uh, uh, analysis. So, but when they adjust for insertion sites, the experience of the operator, the type of antisepsis, use of CAG dressings, time from ICU admission to insertion, the use of mechanical ventilation, vasopressor, so, you know, just some idea of how sick the patient might be. What they find is very interesting. There's similar risk between off and on hours for um, the BSI outcome. Um, so this is the hazard ratio right there, uh, and you can see the confidence intervals. They also did some nice analyses where they uh, looked at, um, you know, 
where the dwell time was more than four days or more than six days, and uh, the results were similar. They did find a higher catheter tip colonization risk in femoral inserted catheters, but not an increase in the BSI risk uh, with that insertion. So uh, their conclusion was that there was no need to routinely replace uh, intravascular catheters that were inserted, uh, particularly in the femoral site during off hours. So I thought that was interesting because we certainly see a lot of off hours insertion, but that by itself should not be a reason to consider that the sterility has not been uh, maintained. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to move to ultrasound guidance. I know this is this is really in your realm, and uh, you know you guys know much more about this, but I did want to summarize, and and there are. Um, uh, two Cochrane database systematic reviews uh, published by the same group of authors, and this is from 2015. Um, and I, I think the, the, the data are very interesting. I don't think it's a surprise for anyone, but it's also interesting to see how those uh, data are translated uh, to the recommendations in the guidelines. So for um, uh, uh, IJ insertion, there is no question that you know study after study and uh, this um, this systematic review show reduction in total complications and you can see the effect size of the number of participants and trials etc there reduction in inadvertent arterial puncture reduction in hematoma formation more success rates fewer attempts less time to successful cannulation so um, use of the ultrasound has been established as the standard for IJ insertion. I don't want to belabor this, but just wanted to you know, summarize the evidence, um, particularly as we consider the use of uh, ultrasound guidance for subclavian and femoral veins, because uh, the data are a little different perhaps. So for subclavian veins, uh, there is um, some reduction in um, inadvertent arterial puncture as well, as well as for hematoma formation, and you can see those um, effects there. For the femoral vein, um, no difference in arterial puncture or other complications, but there is some increase in success on the first attempt uh, and small increase in the overall success rate. So I thought that that difference was uh, uh, interesting to think about. Then uh, there is again a, very, a recent study that uh, is very interesting and intriguing. This is another post hoc analysis of uh, three of those uh, French ICU RCTs. Um, and here they tried to look at the risk of infection when ultrasound was used versus when ultrasound was not used. So again, people are not randomized based on the use of ultrasound. They're, you know, they're enrolled in these RCTs for other questions. Uh, so this is just, you know, it ends up being a cohort study, but they have this really nice um, rich database that they were able to combine because of similar data collection. And what they find here is that among IJ and femoral CVCs, but not with subclavian, there seems to be an association between the use of ultrasound and the risk of infection. So that's the hazard ratio for that. And they also find that catheter insertion site colonization at removal was more common in the ultrasound guided group among the jugular and femoral CVCs that had been in place uh, for less than seven days. So that's, that's very interesting. The, the whole idea is, and again, this is not, um, this is completely biologically plausible, right? It suggests that there is contamination that is occurring at the time of insertion 
and it is higher when you're using ultrasound. There's more uh, chance of uh, breaching uh, sterility at that point. Um, again, as a reminder, this is not a randomized study, but they did use propensity score weighting to account for the probability of ultrasound use. So the analysis itself is 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 robust. Uh, but I do want to point out that the, you know, there is an increase in relative risk, but overall the rates of infection in these studies are low uh, as they are in, uh, in, in recent years. This is all pre-pandemic. Um, they also excluded patients uh, in whom chlorhexidine dressings were used as, as we use as well. So that's a really important point because they were unable to account for the impact of CAG dressing in mitigating that risk. Um, so the authors themselves state uh, and very clearly that this does not compel moving away from ultrasound use as um, you know the the improvement in mechanical uh, or reduction in mechanical complications would far outweigh um, you know any any potential risk of infection. But it does underscore attention to sterile technique at the time of insertion when using ultrasound guidance. So I thought this was just a very interesting study uh, to go through. So what does that all mean and what has uh, what is in the guidelines? So there are two guidelines that I wanted to um, just bring up here. One, as I mentioned, is the SHEA Compendium of Strategies, which was just published a couple of months ago. And the other one, which is from a couple of years ago, uh, is from the French Society of Intensive Care. And I bring this up because you know they are the leaders in some of these studies, and I, I wanted to compare that with the US guidelines and, and see where they differ and, and you know what's similar. So uh, what is um, what is nice is that in both of those that the you know the really the first recommendation is that the subclavian site is preferred to reduce infectious complications in the ICU setting. So we should be making um, an effort to do so. Um, in the U.S. guidelines, they do say, um, and this this used to be the primary recommendation in the SHEA compendium is to avoid femoral but they've uh, switched that in favor of what they call a more positive recommendation in favor of the subclavian. Um, in the French guideline, interestingly, they say the IJ is probably not preferred over fem uh, femoral, uh, which is a great two, but with strong consensus uh, recommendation. Um, in, in the US guidance, um, their recommendations are annotated with saying it's important to provide emergent access in the fastest manner, and um, you know the uh, infectious and non-infectious risk and benefits must be considered on an individual basis, and uh, obviously avoiding subclavian in patients currently receiving or likely to require hemodialysis. Um, again, with the idea of not causing stenosis um, should that need arise, and um, very nicely acknowledging the controversy in balancing risks between the different sites. Um, the, uh, well, I, I, I missed this, but using ultrasound guidance is a high recommendation. They don't distinguish between the different sites. In the French guidelines, interestingly, they, they go side by side and say clearly using ultrasound for IJ insertion uh, to prevent complications, probably using it for subclavian and then probably for femoral, but the femoral um, uh, guidance is just based on expert opinion. So I, I wanted to leave you with that um, summary of recommendations. Um, so what does that mean for us? And I, I just tried to summarize in my mind the way, you know, how, how we could think about it, but, you know, it's, it's harder, I think, at the best side than it is to put it on paper. So stronger recommendation for preference for subclavian, that should be the goal from an infection prevention standpoint. 
but, and there are a lot of buts, it has to do with having a competent inserter, including the use of ultrasound, uh, accounting for host characteristics, obviously not, you know, not used for dialysis, but also in someone who might need long-term hemodialysis. Um, um, you know, we've always said consider the bleeding or coagulopathy uh, risk. Um, also, in, in U.S. guidelines, there are no parameters provided, so I think people sort of use their own judgment, but the French guidelines do provide some parameters on when you might consider moving away from the subclavian if your INR or platelets are above or below this level. Also, risk of pneumothorax, and again, in the French guidelines, they said, well, think about, you know, if the CF ratio is less than 200, or if the respiratory status is otherwise unstable or tenuous, then you might not want to do a subclavian for risk of barotrauma. Um, the other thing which we also try to emphasize is the ease of dressing maintenance. The subclavian makes it so much easier for nurses to maintain that dressing, to change that dressing in a sterile way, avoid um, you know, the, the secretions and the turning, et cetera. Um, and then you know, this, this age-old question of IJ over femoral, I'm not sure if that's you know, been answered or remains equivocal, but considering a preference, particularly in you know, obese patients or when the duration is going to be more than five days. So that's, that's sort of how I summarized it, um, but I think people still need to use their judgment. Um, there are some other strategies that are reinforced in the Shea Compendium update. This is not new guidance, but I did put it here because I think it's so important. Um, in our whole campaign, if you can call it a campaign, has been about going back to the basics. So it was nice to see these listed again um, as um, what's, what's now called essential practices. Uh, with the caveat that the quality of evidence for most of these is moderate and for the first one is low. Uh, but, but here uh, is what we do recommend, uh, as, it's, as stated in the Shea Compendium 1, that people have access to appropriate indications for the different types of CVCs. There be education and competency of those involved in the insertion and maintenance of central lines. We provide all-inclusive kits or cards, which we do. We use maximal sterile barrier at every insertion. We use a checklist and ensure adherence to the checklist at every insertion. Um, and, and in our setting, we really say that with the help of an independent observer, that is the, the best way of um, observing uh, adherence to the checklist. Okay, I'm going to just take a pause and move on to the last uh, part of the talk, which is uh, the use of midlines in hospitalized patients. To me, as I was reviewing uh, and preparing to make these slides, this part was actually the most interesting I, uh, I, I want to uh, preface by saying that um, a lot needs to be done in this area, and if people are looking to advance their research, this field seems right, uh, because there are emerging data, but there are not um, uh, you know, a lot of ongoing studies, and we definitely could, could benefit from uh, more use of midlines in, in the ICU setting. So um, having said that, um, you know, why use midlines in the ICU or in the general hospital setting? It is a strategy, uh, and I think it's being explored more now um, as, as, um, uh, as an intervention to be able to reduce the use of central lines so we can prevent the infection uh, and other complications that result from central line use. However, the big caveat there, or the assumption in doing so is um, that midlines are without that same level of harm as central lines are. 
and those are the data that are somewhat missing from the well or, or missing from the literature really and it's important to know that every vascular access device be it a midline or a dialysis catheter a central line or a peripheral line can cause harm right we do see our share of PIV related phlebitis and bacteremia so nothing is without risk so we definitely need to um, to balance uh, balance that or understand uh, what the differences in risks are so the first um, study that I wanted to um, go through here is um, a systematic review which was published in critical care medicine just last year uh, this uh, is looking at midline complications from several studies um, going uh, you know almost 20 years worth of data and uh, almost 19,000 midline catheters and five studies done in five countries. Two of these were randomized controlled trials and most were cohort studies. One was pediatric, two neonatal. And um, the average dwell time was about 16 days. Uh, and here is the main uh, finding that we're interested in, that the mean infection rate was about 0.28 per thousand catheter days. And I, I, I italicized this next bullet because I thought it was so interesting that in 64% of studies reported no infection at all whatsoever with uh, midline catheter use. Um, the failure rate overall was 12.5%. And then um, other significant complications reported were uh, DVTs, dislodgement, occlusion, phlebitis, and infiltration. So that those are the uh, proportions or frequency of the different complications. <clears throat> Um, the, the authors did try to put these uh, findings in the context of data or what's known uh, on complications from central lines. And just looking at historical data, because there are no direct comparisons um, available in each of these studies, is that overall the dwell times and failure rates seem similar or better than central lines. The infection rates based on this review seemed uh, lower than what's published for uh, central lines. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, they found about 0.28 per thousand catheter days. What, what you see in the in, in brackets here is just um, uh, estimates that I created based on what we've seen in our institution and also what's published. So, you know, we we te we tended to be on the higher side um, of uh, of central line infection rates. So, pre-pandemic, I think in the U.S you would estimate 0.5 to 1 per thousand catheter days. And during the pandemic, as I showed, you know, things went, uh, uh, the rates went higher. So, but, but think of that in the context of what's being shown here in the systematic review of midline infection rates. But then also, if you look at the mechanical complications, particularly DVT, those seem to be um, higher. And again, that's biologically supported uh, because they terminate in a smaller vein and the flow rates are lower. So that is certainly, um, uh, plausible. What I wanted to highlight though are, so I, I pulled out a couple of studies that were included in the systematic review just to t give you an idea of the quality of those studies and you know why it's so hard to make a lot of these data. So one of these, uh, the largest studies that was included was uh, done in, uh, in Detroit, Michigan in 2016. And they looked at a, a variety of outcomes comparing midlines with central lines, right? So they just took um, in that time period all the all adult patients who had midlines and compared them with um, patients who had central lines uh, and looked for uh, a variety of complications. And they found uh, a higher incidence of uh, bloodstream infections, um, as you can see here. 
and higher uh, mechanical complications with midline relative to central lines. So, well, that's all, that's okay. Um, they also report that patients with central lines had a higher crude mortality, higher readmission and line-related admission and higher ICU transfer after line placement. The problem is that they, you know, it, they don't discuss how the patients who are getting central lines in the first place because this is not a randomized study, are just so completely different. And that's, that's pretty clear from you know, the higher mortality, et cetera. That is not attributed to the line. That's the, that's the uh, presentation of the patient. So there, this study and most of the studies that are published in this area suffer from uncontrolled confounding. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to just say, oh, you know, midlines have just such lower risk. It is a lot about the patients that are being selected for midline use. Um, uh, versus a function of the midline itself, which may well be lower, but I think it's hard to conclude based on uh, most of these studies. Um, so this is uh, this next study was not in the meta-analysis. This is a more recent study and uh, probably the most robust data we have um, um, in this topic. But this comparison is with pigs only. And this was done uh, by the Michigan group. So uh, again, 48 Michigan hospitals who participate in the Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium. And uh, note the indications here. These are difficult vascular access or antibiotic therapy. So less of an ICU population um, here. Um, and their main outcome was a composite of uh, DVT-PE infection or uh, occlusion. So, so they focused on these major complications uh, they included uh, over 5,000 pigs and over 5,000 midlines. Most of those were single lumen catheters. Um, and, the, and these are the median dwell times for those catheters. And you can see, again, you know, pigs were almost uh, in place for twice as long as midlines on average. Uh, what is nice about this study, other than that it's in a multi-center, uh, is that they did some pretty robust analyses adjusting for those patient characteristics we discussed that could influence the um, the likelihood of someone getting a pick or a midline. And you know the, the difference between pick and midline is 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 a little um, different from the difference between a midline and a central line uh, that that you might consider for ICU patients. So with that, um, they did find uh, that the catheter occlusion uh, was higher for pigs, a bloodstream infection was higher for pigs, DVT was actually pretty similar. So, and the incidence of PE was just very small, so difficult to, you know, make any uh, inferences there. Um, catheter removal for major complication occurred in 7% of midlines and 5% of pigs. Uh, so after adjusting overall for the composite outcome, there was a higher risk of complications with pigs via midline uh, versus midline. So that was a very interesting and um, compelling uh, finding, and particularly for the infection outcome, four times as high and no significant difference in risk of DVT or PE. They did, when they did uh, more a time-to-event analysis accounting for device dwell time, did find that there was, um, uh, you know, less of a hazard of DVT in pigs, so, you know, higher in midlines, uh, which may just reflect that midlines tended to stay in for a shorter time. So you're having a higher number of DVT events in fewer total catheter days. Um, and their results in sensitivity analyses limited to complications in the first 10 days were similar. So if you, um, you know, consider that picks were in for longer, then this would also um, take care of that difference. 
All right. And this last study, I think, is probably the most relevant to, um, to in intensivists. And I think it's a very interesting study. Um, this was a cohort study done at George Washington, so hospitals close by in their ICU, which is a mixed uh, critical care ICU. Uh, I did note the, the type of catheter because I thought that would be relevant to the discussion. So it's a four French 20 centimeter catheter uh, midline that they're placing. And um, with, they describe you know, high uh, rate of success on the first attempt. Most of these were placed by a dedicated nurse. Uh, the average dwell time here was 14 days, plus minus 12.8 days. So that's a pretty solid duration for, C for midlines that are inserted for uh, presser use. And uh, they do make a big deal about that only 12% required eventual uh, CBC placement, which I thought was also interesting. And the average duration of the use of these midlines for continuous vasopressor um, infusion was almost eight days, uh, with, uh, plus minus nine days. So again, pretty, pretty long durations uh, for both the, how long the lines were in and how long pressors were infused through those. Um, they described eight patients or 3.2 that experienced some complication, but interestingly, a lot of these are, um, you know, uh, so, well, so a lot of these are infections. So the infection rate here is fairly high, but when I went back to look at the definition, they use a very liberal definition of bloodstream infection, which is any positive blood culture in the 48 hours after that midline um, placement. So, you know, uh, that's, uh, that may or may not be related to the midline. So I, I think there may be some um, perhaps overestimation of the infection risk, but they did see a small numbers with a drug extravasation, thrombophlebitis, and readmission for midline-associated DVT. Um, what they don't provide is the time to complications. I was really interested in that as far as implications for um, you know, our, our patients. So because they didn't have that, I, I looked up other studies, and, and it's, it's interesting that not many studies uh, provide these uh, data, but there was one that was published in 2020. It's a different patient population. This was a single center study at NYC uh, where they have mostly, uh, you know, mostly outpatient, some inpatient, um, and they're looking at uh, uh, the use of midlines for outpatient or um, inpatient antimicrobial therapy. And they report a small number of complications, but they do report that the median time to complication was about eight days. So I thought those data were helpful when trying to just think about how long you can have these lines without running into issues. And what was also nice with this study was that most of the um, complications are report for what they call local events. So, you know, just irritation at the site. So they also had a very liberal definition for capturing all sorts of complications. So you'll see that you know, three or four of the seven were either irritation or phlebitis or bruising at the site, uh, followed by dislodgement, but did not see any extravasations from hosts or infection. And then five of the seven with complications required a new catheter. All right, so what I have on this slide is um, the trends in what we're seeing in usage of midline catheters in our institution. And I, uh, you know, we just pulled these data as I was looking, uh, you know, preparing this talk and was just curious because this is not something we've been tracking uh, historically. And I think this is fascinating. So it looked like um, we were trending up uh, before the pandemic on the number of midlines. And this is midline days. So, you know, not the numbers of patients, but the total number of days 
of, of midline use in both the ICU and the non-ICU setting. And then since the pandemic, those numbers seem to have dropped. Um, um, and in the last fiscal year, they are really, really low. So we're still looking into these data. We think these are, um, you know, these represent what's been documented in EPIC, so should be pretty accurate. But we're taking a closer look at this. But I did want to bring this to your attention um, as we start thinking about expanding midline use, particularly in the ICU setting and how we might do that. And I think this is the last slide I have uh, is just, you know, again, putting down well, what should be the consideration for midline use in our ICUs. Uh, of course, appropriate patient selection. Um, and could, could this patient do with a midline and not require a central line? Making sure we have appropriate personnel trained to insert and maintain, as is true for you know, central lines and any other catheter. Making sure that we are selecting only compatible infusions, uh, which does include pressors. Um, uh, there is this uh, one publication that looked at the use of alteplase, um, you know, which is uh, off-label use for declotting of midlines, but um, can be used in that situation, and, and we've done that too um, in, in the past. Um, the optimal duration for midlines is not known. They are they are labeled or they are approved for use up to 28 days. Uh, generally, you know, because we start seeing complications uh, at that, uh, you know, after that two-week mark, or that that's what's described in the literature for dwell time. Um, uh, for the indications of poor access to IV antibiotics, we want to be vigilant if it's more than two weeks. For presser use, I will say the optimal duration is unknown. Clearly, in the GW study, they were using it for you know a couple of weeks or more. Uh, in the UMMC guidance, uh, which is just guidance, we currently limit it to 24 hours for presser. But I think the real question is if we should start extending that time frame. And um, my thought was that you know at least thinking about five to seven days of use based on the published time to, to complications and erring on this uh, on the side of um, you know, the, the lower uh, bound of that time to complications. And then I think we do need some mechanism to track the outcomes uh, as we start expanding, if we start ex expanding the use of midlines for, for pressors. So there is some food for thought for uh, intensivists um, to, to see where we want to go with the use of midlines, uh, both in an attempt to uh, reduce the use of central lines and uh, reduce complications. That's all I have. I'm going to stop here. I think we have a few minutes. I would love to see your comments or, uh, you know, from others uh, on their thoughts or any questions.